This week on the Backtable Podcast. You know, I think it was at this time in the presentation when the KM curve went up, demonstrating the overall survival, that there was literally a standing ovation in the room when the data was put into view that lasted for about two to three minutes. Quite impressive and just kind of gives us all an opportunity to reflect about why we do what we do. This is why we do clinical trials. This is why our treatments are suboptimal and, and we are not settling for the current treatments and continuing to push the field forward. So it, it was just really great. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at backtable.com. I am your host, Bogdana Schmidt. I'm a urologic oncologist at the University of Utah Huntsman Cancer Institute. And joining me today are world-renowned medical oncology experts, Dr. Raina McKay, who is an associate professor of medicine and urology at UCSD, and Dr. Niraj Agarwal, Professor of Medical Oncology, and my colleague at the Huntsman Cancer Institute at the University of Utah. Welcome, Niraj and Reina. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, same here. So, such a pleasure. Okay, well, let's jump into it. I wasn't in Madrid, sadly, but following along on X, formerly known as Twitter, I felt like I couldn't keep up. It was breakthrough after breakthrough, people tweeting all the time. So let's start with the most exciting stuff for me, the bladder cancers. Reina, we saw some really exciting data, but Checkmate 901 and ED302, both amazing. Almost sad that one overshadowed the other, so let's give Checkmate its moment to shine. Can you start by trying to explain the trial to us, and then we'll dive into the results? Absolutely. So the Checkmate 901 study was a trial that was designed looking at the combination of cisplatinum gemcitabine plus nivolumab versus cisplatinum gemcitabine alone for frontline metastatic urothelial carcinoma. These were patients who had had treatment-naive disease. They were ECOG of zero to one. They needed to be cisplatinum candidates. And patients were basically randomized one-to-one to receive triple therapy with cisplatinum gemcitabine nevo versus cisplatinum gemcitabine. And the primary endpoint of the trial was overall survival and progression-free survival by independent radiology review. Now, what's interesting about this study is this study there have been a series of other studies that have looked at the combination of IO therapy with platinum-based chemotherapy in the frontline setting, um, looking at pembrolizumab, looking at atezolizumab. What is unique here is that this study was designed specifically with cisplatinum, not with carboplatinum. So this, I think, is unique and differentiates the study from other negative studies in this space. This was a positive trial it actually resulted in an improvement in overall survival of triple therapy with GC plus Nevo over GC. Median overall survival for the total intent to treat population was 21.7 months compared to 18.9 months for DCR alone with a hazard ratio of 0.78, which was statistically significant. And when we look at the hazard ratios across all the different subgroups, really every single subgroup seemed to derive a benefit. One outlier with regards to the U.S. predominant group, but there was really just not a lot of patients in that subgroup. Additionally, we did see an improvement in progression-free survival by independent radiology review. While the median PFS was 7.9 months in the combo triple therapy arm versus 7.6 months, 
there's definitely a tail on the curve that we see emerging when we look at 12 month and 24 month RPFS. So the progression free survival at 12 months with 34.2%, 24 months, just over 20%, around 23.5%. So there did seem to be a tail on the curve with regards to durability. The hazard ratio for PFS was 0.72. So it was really exciting to see this data. I agree. I think it's super exciting. And I'm glad you brought up the Pembro and Atizo combinations before because you bring up a good point. Is there something special about nivolumab or do you think it was just the cisplatin in particular that made this one more likely to be positive? You know, I think it was a little bit more the cisplatinum. I think carboplatinum in general is very myelosuppressive, can result in you know, augmentation of the immune microenvironment. I think there's also been data about the immunogenic properties of cisplatinum. I do think that it could have been related to the platinum eligibility and use of platinum. The other thing is I think patients who are well enough to receive a platinum, you know, that's a different patient population than somebody that's getting carboplatinum and can't receive frontline cysts. So I think also the patients were probably healthier to begin with and maybe were able to see more subsequent lines of therapy. And then one last question on the nivolumab there. So there was a maintenance nivolumab period. Do you think that's also speaking to selecting out certain patients that are performing better or responding better? How do you think that factors into the findings? Yeah, very good question. So, you know, I think with regards to the maintenance nivolumab, you know, this is a different cohort than the Javelin bladder data, where in fact, patients who were primary PD to platinum-based chemotherapy were weeded out before they ever even enrolled on the trial. That's not necessarily the case here. If all patients started treatment with cycle one, day one, you know, GC versus GC Nevo. So if they had a progression event to treatment before they got to maintenance, that would have been captured in the trial. So I think it was just a little bit different than Javelin. And Again, I think this would have been really exciting bladder data had this been the only abstract presented at ESMO, but it wasn't. So let's talk a little bit about EV302. Yeah, so EV302, Dr. Powell presented this data. I mean, this was just like earth shattering, you know, groundbreaking data, I think, in the field. EV302 was a randomized phase three trial that randomized patients to chemotherapy with cisplatinum or carboplatinum plus gemcitabine for a maximum of six cycles versus EV Pembro with no maximum number of treatment cycles of EV, but a maximum of 35 cycles for the Pembro. And the patients who were eligible for this trial were patients who had previously untreated locally advanced or metastatic UC. They needed to be eligible for all the components of therapy, platinum, EV, and pembrolizumab. They were naive to therapy, had good GFR, good performance status. You know, the primary endpoint of the trial was a dual primary endpoint of PFS by independent review and overall survival. And when we look at the baseline characteristics of the trial, they're pretty well balanced between the treatment arms around age, race, you know, performance status. The proportion with upper and lower tract may be a slight increased predilection for upper tract in the EV Pembro group and about equivalent cohorts of around sites of METs. 71% of patients that enrolled had visceral metastases and around 22% had liver metastases. You know, I guess I'll start with the, the overall survival data. It's pretty striking, you know, 53% reduction in the risk of death with EV plus Pembro compared to chemotherapy hazard ratio 0.47 with a median OS of 31.5 months compared to 16.1 months. This is in the intent to treat population, all comer population. So impressive to see overall survival numbers in bladder cancer that are over, you know, 30 months in this population. 
you know, I think it was at this time in the presentation when the KM curve went up demonstrating the overall survival that there was literally a standing ovation in the room when the data was put into view that lasted for about two to three minutes. Quite impressive and just kind of gives us all an opportunity to reflect about why we do what we do. This is why we do clinical trials. This is why our treatments are suboptimal and and we are not settling for the current treatments and continuing to push the field forward. So it was just really great. I agree. I think I've never seen anything like this, even just not being there, but seeing that screenshot, that video of it, it was unbelievable, incredibly exciting. So I'm thrilled about this. I want to just touch a little bit on the adverse event profile of both of these, because on one hand, they're it's not insignificant, but on the other, these treatments in this bladder cancer population, all of them have significant adverse events. The chemotherapy arm alone is significant. So is there anything you want to highlight about the EV Pembro arm in particular? Absolutely. You know, I think this is a treatment, unlike chemotherapy that's given for a finite period and then stopped, this treatment was intended to be given on a continuous basis until evidence of disease progression. And so we definitely saw a fair bit of toxicity and grade three toxicity, uh, grade three or higher toxicity. It was right around 56%. I think the most significant tox uh, was around peripheral neuropathy, rash, you know, uh, there can be some cytopenias, neutropenia, anemia to watch out for. But I think the skin disorder and the neuropathy is something that we're going to need to contend with as we roll this out in the clinic. Additionally, there can be ocular uh, disorders and hyperglycemia. And you mentioned the 56% grade three. I mean, the toxicity profile of the chemotherapy arm was near 70% if you put them all together. So it sounds scary, but it's fairly on par with what we're used to. So this is super exciting on its own. But what do you see happening in the future for EV Pembro? Are you already starting to use this combination for your patients in the metastatic line? I guess this question's for both of you. Have you put any patients on it yet already? Yes. And uh, actually, I think, I I don't know the exact date, but in the month of December, um, EV Pembro was actually FDA approved for all use in frontline bladder. I think the initial approval came after the uh, EV data were presented at ESMO last year for the cisplatinum ineligible population, that cohort K from EV103. And so we did have it available for cisplatinum ineligible. And now it is an option for all patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma. I think there's a lot of questions, I think, in the field as immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting increases. How is EV Pembro going to fare in individuals who may have received adjuvant IO? I think the more natural question is earlier use, use in the neoadjuvant setting, and this drug is now being integrated in the same study, EV103. There is a cohort that uh, looked at neoadjuvant therapy. That data has been presented in preliminary form. So I think there's a lot of excitement. You know, the CR rate with this regimen was approaching 30%, and this is in a metastatic group of patients. So if we think about how we can apply that in the localized setting and potentially increase patients' likelihood of cure is going to be really impressive. I completely agree. I think this is just the beginning and it's really exciting. Okay. Well, I'm going to leave bladder alone for a bit and we can move on to kidney. So for those of us on the surgical side who haven't heard a ton about belzutifan yet, can you briefly explain its origin story? Well, belzutifan and I should say HIF2-alpha inhibition has a very long history in RCC. As we know, the pathogenesis of clear cell RCC is really predicated in mutations in VHL 
the role of BHL is to basically target HIF for proteasomal degradation so it does not actually build up in the cell under norpoxic condition. However, for most clear cell RCCs, greater than 90% of clear cell RCCs, they have mutations in the BHL gene that renders the proteins inactive. And then HIF can build up in the cell, dimerize with other HIF molecules, go into the nucleus, bind to hypoxia response elements, and then lead to all of this badness, you know, angiogenesis and, you know, uh, metastasis and so forth. And I think there's been a long history of figuring out how to drug higher up in the pathway beyond just at the level of VEGF, but actually higher up at the level of HIF. And I think initial attempts at trying to do that have been difficult and actually trying to find an agent, a molecule that can actually block the appropriate pocket and then also the toxicity to contend with because you're blocking higher up in the pathway. And so there's been a long story around, you know, Belzutifan and even starting from the original company Peloton, I think, with a different version of the drug before it was reformulated and ultimately changed into Belzutifan. But it's had a long history. And this work actually of understanding hypoxia in the tumor microenvironment actually led to a Nobel Prize in medicine being awarded in, in 2019. And so it's really exciting that, you know, the therapies that we have at RCC are predicated on this sort of scientific understanding of the disease pathogenesis. So long history of Belzutifan, but Dr. Albages actually presented the data from LightSpark 005 at ESMO. And LightSpark 005 was a randomized phase three trial that enrolled patients with metastatic clear cell RCC that had progressed on one or three prior lines of therapy, including at least a prior checkpoint inhibitor or VEGF inhibitor. And patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive belzutifan, which is an oral agent dosed once daily with or without food, very easy to give, versus everolimus. And I think many probably would argue that everolimus as a monotherapy really has very little role in modern-day treatment of RCC. Um, this was an international trial enrolling patients across, you know, globally, not just within North America. The primary endpoint was PFS by independent review and also overall survival. And if we look at sort of the breakdown of the different lines of therapy, this was a heavily pretreated, you know, patient population. About 45% of patients, 40 to 45% of patients had received three or more prior lines of therapy. And, uh, you know, I think that they were heavily pretreated. The study was positive. It was a positive trial for PFS. The hazard ratio for PFS was 0.75. But, you know, when we look at the medians, they're right on top of one another. So 5.6 median OS um, with belzutifan and 5.6 with everolimus. This was at the second interim analysis. But there is a tail on the curve that we see emerging. The 18-month progression-free survival is right around 22 and a half percent. I think there was a lot of censoring in the everolimus arm of the trial. I think there was very um, low threshold to probably get people off treatment if there was any evidence of signs of progression. And so I think that probably impacted the performance of the Everlimus arm. But it was a positive trial, which is really exciting, I think, for our patients. And, and just within the last couple of weeks, we also saw the approval of Belzutifan in the U.S. as another treatment for patients with RCC. So, Niraj, I'm going to ask you for a couple more points on Belzutifan. In addition to discussing some of the additional LightSpark studies, can you comment a little bit on the curves for belzutifan that Raina mentioned, the timing of it? Do you feel like the timing of when you start to see a response 
with belzutifan is an important thing to think about for your patients, or is it something that's still unclear? It is important when especially patients are when they are experiencing rapid disease progression. So obviously, with all like any other therapies, we select patients for a given treatment. So this may not be the best treatment for a patient who has been exposed to immune checkpoint inhibitor with cabozantinib, for example, and has a high volume rapid disease progression. I'll use lenvatinib with a rolimus in those patients. But many of our patients have slow disease progression, they have time to achieve response or get response. And belzutifan is a very well-tolerated medication for most of my patients. Even though they may have anemia or hypoxia, they don't have those hand-foot syndrome or diarrhea or altered sensitivity and so on. So patients who have slowly progressive disease in refractory setting, I think belzutifan is a very good option. So you mentioned the combination or cabozantinib-belzutifan combo. Can you Talk a little bit about LightSpark 3. So the belzutifan cabozantinib trial was a small trial also presented in the same session in ESMO. And there were actually two cohorts, cohort 1 and cohort 2. Cohort 1 was untreated. These patients had newly diagnosed metastatic RCC requiring treatment. And cohort 2 was patients who had been exposed to first-line immune checkpoint inhibitors, and many of them have received two lines of therapies. So if you look at the data with cabozantinib. And the reason these studies are important is because the story of belzutifan is not going to stop with treatment in third-line therapy. Belzutifan continues to move to upfront setting, and cabozantinib being a very commonly used drug, I was curious to see how this goes, how belzutifan does when combined with cabozantinib. So if you look at the cohort 1 patients, about 50 patients, the objective response rates, and these are single-arm studies, Objective response rates with the combination of velzutifan at standard dose of 120 mg with cabozantinib at 60 mg daily, their objective responses are 70%. This is what we see with, say, lenvatinib hemrozilumab in first-line setting. And median progression-free survival is 31 months. Again, a very long PFS. To me, in treatment naive patients, assuming this combination moves forward, this will be a very attractive combination, more attractive for those patients who cannot tolerate checkpoint inhibitors. They have contraindications for immune therapies or who have been exposed to immune therapies, for example, in the adjuvant therapy setting. And sometimes I don't feel like immune therapy is the best option for them, although this population was a different patient population. But I think the belzutifan plus cabozantinib combination will have promising efficacy data in those patients if tested. So that's how I see the evolution of this combination further. While I'm talking about belzutifan studies, I will really quickly highlight the study we presented on the belzutifan dosing. And this was a third study presented in the same session. And in this study, belzutifan dose of 120 milligram daily versus belzutifan 200 milligram daily were tested. And just to take our audience back to LightSpark 001 trial, which origi originally looked at the dosing of belzutifan, I'd like to remind our listeners that maximum tolerated dose of belzutifan was not reached in that trial. And 120 milligram dose was picked up based on the totality of PK, PD, and side effect data. Well, I think it was obvious to see if belzutifan can be tolerated at a higher dose of 200 milligram with the hope that 
toxicity will be similar and efficacy will be much higher. So with that background, we conducted a study known as Light Spark 013 study, where belzotifan 120 milligram was compared to belzotifan 200 milligram daily. And the bottom line is objective responses are very similar, 23%. Median duration of response, progression-free survival were all very similar. In this patient population, which has had prior therapies, so this was a treatment refractory setting. And in this study, overall, if you look at the grade three, four side effects, they were very similar. Grade one or two side effects, very similar. But if you look at treatment discontinuations, those modifications, which were happening because of the belzotifan dosing, they were more frequent with belzotifan 200 milligram daily than belzotifan 120 milligram daily. Based on this, we concluded that there is no point using a higher dose of belzotifan when it is leading to higher rates of dose modifications and dose discontinuations, and efficacy is similar. So based on this study, belzotifan 120 milligram daily remains the standard of care dose for our patients who are going to be treated with belzotifan, and there is no point increasing the dose. Makes perfect sense. And just to go back, a little bit to explain the significance of this, or to highlight rather the significance of this. These are the belzutifan alone, purely oral treatment, the belzutifan plus cabozatinib, purely oral pill-based treatment. These are not things we see very often in our urology populations, whether in bladder, prostate, or kidney, having just purely pill-based treatments for advanced disease, I think is a huge breakthrough for our patients. Absolutely. I agree allows our patients to stay at home. Yeah, which we know they all appreciate. Okay, are we ready to move on to prostate or is there anything else we wanted to address on either bladder or kidney? I think I just wanted to make sure for the sake of completion, I do mention the second cohort of LightSpark 03 trial where pre-treated patients were included in the combination arm or combination therapy of belzotifan with cabozantinib. And in this pre-treated patient population, which we did not see any higher activity of belzotifan-cabozantinib combination compared to cabozantinib alone. So I think they were very similar. So I think this combination of belzotifan with cabozantinib, if I am thinking about developing this combination, if this combination is going to be developed, it, was, it is going to be the first-line metastatic RCC setting. That would be my take from those data on belzotifan. I think that's an incredibly exciting direction. I was going to say, I think right now that therapy, belzutifan, is being investigated in combination with lenvatinib and pembrolizumab as triple therapy in the frontline setting in the LightSpark 012 study. And we've obviously seen the data around TKIs in the adjuvant setting, and belzutifan will be investigated adjuvantly in combination with pembrolizumab. And recent press release from... Uh, 564, Keno 564, demonstrating that adjuvant pembrolizumab actually improved overall survival in patients with advanced localized RCC having undergone a nephrectomy. So I think there's a lot of excitement happening with this drug moving into the adjuvant setting, which is relevant, you know, in the urologic space post-nephrectomy. And, and, I, and there will be data that will be presented to that extent that GUASCO by Dr. Tony Shawiri, the abstract titles for GUASCO have already been released. Well, certainly something to look forward to. Yeah, I'm glad, Rena, you brought up those studies because it is exciting to see so many studies happening with belzotifan. 
and we are looking forward to those results in next coming years. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's move on to some of the highlights in the prostate session. So, Raina, can we start talking about the Embark, the health-related quality of life in non-metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer patient trial? Absolutely. So Dr. Friedland had presented updated data from the Embark trial. The Embark trial was a randomized phase three trial for men with high-risk biochemically recurrent non-metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer that had received a definitive local therapy, whether that was a radical prostatectomy or radiation. To enroll on the trial, patients had to have a certain threshold PSA dependent on whether they had RP or radiation, and they had to have a PSA doubling time of, of less than or equal to nine months and needed to have a T greater than 150 at baseline. And patients were randomized into one of three arms, enzalutamide with a combination of luprolide given for one year in an intermittent fashion, placebo plus luprolide, and that arm was blinded. And then there was an exploratory unblinded arm of enzymonotherapy that was given for a one-year duration. And the primary endpoint was looking at metastasis-free survival in the enzalupron arm compared to the placebo-lupron arm. And this study was a positive study demonstrating improvement of MFS, you know, of Enza combo over the luprodiol alone. Additionally, in the Enza monotherapy arm, we did see a statistically significant improvement in MFS compared to just lupron alone. And this meeting, we saw data that were presented regarding the quality of life. I think quality of life can sometimes be a little bit challenging given that you know, this was not a primary endpoint. It was an exploratory endpoint in the context of the study. You know, there's a lot of nuances around quality of life, you know, ensuring completeness of the questionnaires, at what time points were the questionnaires deployed. There was a couple of instruments that were utilized, including the fact that QLQ, PR25, EQ5D5L. So there was a couple of different questionnaires that were utilized. And I think the main message is that there was really no decrement in quality of life across all the domains that were assessed with combination therapy compared to just luprolide alone. There was subset analyses of quality of life domains for the Enzo monotherapy. And I think for the most part, quality of life was on par with Lupron. I think the main domain where there was maybe a favoring towards the Enzo monotherapy arm was in the sexual function domain. But outside of that domain, I think quality of life was kind of on par with Lupron. So I think it was really good to see this data because I think this is going to be increasingly utilized in the biochemically recurrent space of escalating therapy for those high-risk individuals. And thank you for, for mentioning that. So following this presentation, I saw that the Enza arm alone was also approved in this setting. Yes. So I think we do have now, you know, the availability to just do Enza model therapy. You know, I think it's all about having those shared decision-making discussions with patients about what are their goals of care, you know, what are the things that matter to them. You know, the Enza monotherapy arm was not compared to the Enza Lupron arm. You know, there was no statistical comparison. And then the Enza monotherapy was unblinded. So people knew that they were only on Enza monotherapy as opposed to getting an injectable. So I think, you know, it's hard to make those kinds of comparisons, but I think this data highlights that, yes, this regimen is efficacious. And in those individuals who, you know, have, depending on their goals of care, you know, what matters to them, there may be some individuals that are appropriate for enzymonotherapy over getting castration therapy. So, Niraj, who do you think might be that individual? Do you think that the 
possible advantage of the sexual preservation on the Enzo alone makes up for the shorter treatment-free interval seen in that arm? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So first of all, people are going to be using enzalutamide monotherapy. I agree with Reina. And that's why I would like to just highlight really briefly the treatment emergent adverse events in this trial. So we look at fatigue, hypertension, fall. They're all very similar with the, in both enzalutamide arms. But if you look at enzalutamide monotherapy arm, the presence of gynecomastia was present in 45% patients compared to 9% or 8% patients in other arms. So I think that is something which we'll be dealing with when we are using enzalutamide monotherapy and how to preempt gynecomastia, how to provide prophylactic breast bud radiation. I think those, were, those are the issues which will be coming up in our clinic when we use enzalutamide monotherapy. I'll also like to bring your attention to the fact that patients were allowed to take a break from the treatment if they experienced a PSA of less than 0.2 nanogram per mil at week 36 after starting treatment in this trial. And 90% patients in the Enza ADT arm and 85% patients in the Enza monotherapy arm and 67% patients in the ADT only arm experienced a PSA of 0.2 two or less. Actually, it was less than 0.2. And they were allowed to start the treatment suspension. So they didn't receive any treatment until BSA recovered. Although this is not statistically compared, but it is intriguing to see that patients on the enzalutamide ADT combination arm were able to suspend their treatment for 20 months compared to 11 months in the enzalutamide monotherapy arm. And the ADT alone arm were somewhere in the middle. It was like 17 months. So I think patients who are really concerned about continuous therapy and they really are interested in taking a clean break from the treatment, they may be interested more in the combination of enzalutamide ADT therapy arm versus enzalutamide monotherapy arm. But on the other hand, as Vena mentioned, if patients are really want to preserve their sexual function for longer, enzalutamide monotherapy arm may be more appealing to them. So those are the nuances of these data I wanted to share. Perfect. Thank you. I think that makes sense. And it's certainly, like Raina said, it's a real discussion you have to have with the patient and figure out their goals and their priorities. So we talked a little bit about enzalutamide and Embark, but let's talk now about lutetium. So everybody's been hearing about lutetium. There have been a few updates presented at ESMO. Naraj, do you want to start us off with those? Yes. So as we know, lutetium-177 is a beta radiation particle which is delivered to the prostate cancer in a very targeted fashion using a carrier which actually recognizes PSMA, which is expressed on the prostate cancer cells, more expressed, overexpressed on prostate cancer cells. So the name of the carrier is PSMA 617, but there are other carriers such as PSMA INT. So lutetium 177, PSMA 617, also known as Pluvicto, was approved in the United States based on the trial of. Uh, vision trial, which was a post-NHT post-chemotherapy trial where lutetium-177 therapy was associated with a 40% reduction in risk of progression or 60% reduction in risk of progression and 40% reduction in risk of death compared to the control arm, which had either NHT or bone-strengthening agents and chemotherapy was not allowed in that control arm. So this is the vision trial data, a statistically significant improvement in both PFS and overall survival. Now, 
Let's look at the PSMA-4 trial, which was presented by Dr. Oliver Sauter in uh, ESMO 2023 meeting. And this trial is a randomized trial of patients with metastatic CRPC who had disease progression on a novel hormonal therapy or androgen receptor targeting therapy, such as enzalutamide or aviratinone. And they were randomized to lutetium-177, PSMS-617 or Pluvicto versus a alternate ARPI. So if they got enzalutamide, they got abiratinone, and they got abiratinone previously. In this trial, they got enzalutamide. Primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free survival by independent review, and it was significantly improved on treatment with lutetium-177 therapy. If you look at the absolute numbers, there was a six-month improvement in delaying of progression or radiographic progression with a 60% decrease in the risk of progression or death. If you look at the overall survival, with the caveat that 84% patients on the control arm of novel hormonal therapy were allowed to switch over to the lutetium therapy arm, there was no difference in overall survival at the time of report of the study. Now, I would like to mention another trial we just we just saw the press release on, which is... I was just getting about to ask you about Splash. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Uh, thank you. This is intriguing because now we are seeing a wave of radioligand therapies in our practice and more will be coming. So the SPLASH trial is using lutetium-177 therapy, but the carrier molecule is different. It's PSMA-INT. So these are all PSMA-identifying small molecules and the identify PSMA goes where PSMA is being expressed and then basically carry lutetium-177 with them. So in this trial, the SPLASH trial, the design was very similar. Patients who had metastatic CRPC with prior progression on a androgen receptor pathway inhibitor, and they were either not eligible or didn't want chemotherapy with docetaxel, and these patients were randomized to an alternate ARPI, so ARPI switch, versus lutetium-177 PSMA-INT. Radiographic progression-free survival was the primary endpoint, by independent radiology review, and it was statistically significantly improved with lutetium-177 PSMA-INT with a 30% reduction in risk of progression. If you look at the absolute values, six months in the control arm, very similar to what we see with the PSMA-4 trial, but the experimental arm with lutetium-177 was 9.5 months compared to 12 months in the PSMA-4 trial. So we see some differences with the big caveat that these are different trials, different patient populations. So we should not be like really comparing them, but it's very natural for us to compare these two very similar trials. And just to make sure uh, for the completion of uh, discussion, the overall survival is immature at 46% maturity, but it is not significantly improved. In fact, in this trial also, 84% patients crossed over to the lutetium arm from the ARPI arm. And the hazard ratio for overall survival is 1.11. So we are not seeing any overall survival improvement, in my view, likely because the crossing over of most of the patients to the... 84%, that's hard to, hard to comment on the efficacy. Yeah. So assuming the overall survival data matures and also demonstrates benefit, given the response that you're seeing of both of these tracers and the tolerability... What do you think is next for lutetium? Yeah, so I'd like to just make one point really quick. The lutetium dose used in the SPLASH trial was about 33% lower than what was used in the PSMA-4 trial. 
So obviously nobody can remember this, or at least I cannot. So I have to look it up. In the PSMF4 trial, the dose of lutetium was 7.4 gigabacquerel every six weeks for six cycles. So six doses of lutetium to keep it simple. In the SPLASH trial, the dose of lutetium 177 was 6.8, so one point lower gigabacquerel every eight weeks for four cycles. So four doses of lutetium to keep it simple. So I think there will be some nuances in the side effect profile. I think if you look at these two trials and really could do head-to-head -head comparison, you may see lower side effects within the SPLASH trial. May. Obviously, we have to see the data which will be presented in the forthcoming meeting. But I think it's good to have options for our patients. So I think SPLASH trial hopefully will result in approval of lutetium 177 PSMA1T, INT, and uh, we'll have two options. Regarding future directions, I think the way everything has moved in prostate cancer, we start from late CRPC setting, and then we move to upfront setting. So we know PSMA addition trial is going on, which is using lutetium-177, PSMA-617 in newly diagnosed patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer who are being treated with uh, standard of care therapies. And we are expecting to see the results in the near future. So if this trial is positive, there's no doubt that lutetium therapy will move further upfront, upstream. And we saw the data from the ENZEP trial, lutetium being combined with enzalutamide in patients with newly diagnosed metastatic CRPC setting. So in patients who have newly diagnosed MCRPC and who have not been exposed to enzalutamide, I think we saw intriguing results in terms of improved PSA progression-free survival, but not radiographic progression-free survival from the ENZEP trial in ESMO 2023. I think this therapy, like any other therapy in prostate cancer, will continue to be tested in different settings, and this will be uh, a part of the overall treatment sequencing we use in our clinic. I agree. I think this is a really exciting time for all of our disease processes. I don't remember the last time there was something fundamentally, potentially paradigm-changing presented in kidney, bladder, and prostate all in the same meeting. This is a really great time for our patients and for us taking care of them. Well, I'd love to thank my wonderful colleagues for joining me for this session of Backtable Urology. Reina, Naraj, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having me. And always great to see you both. It's wonderful. Be on the lookout. You know, ESMO's a uh, lot of excitement happening at ESMO, and next year's meeting will be in Barcelona, back in Spain, and always exciting to stay abreast on the data. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jim Willie Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. Thank you.